You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 22. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guest on today's episode is Michaela Howie, a wildlife researcher and field biologist that we have been collaborating with on a new film project called ICHAG, A Personal Journey. This new Eyes on Conservation film, which we're premiering on the Eyes on Conservation website alongside this podcast episode, is about what it's like to live in complete isolation for four months on an island in the Aleutians, studying seabirds. Michaela's film captures the essence of her experience on the island of Ektak in a strikingly honest and beautiful way. We'll be talking with her today about seabird monitoring, fieldwork, and extreme isolation, and what it was like to make this amazing film. Let's jump into that interview. I am here with wildlife researcher and filmmaker Michaela Howie. How are you doing, Michaela? Pretty good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to start off just by getting a little bit of background information on you. I'm wondering what led you to start working as a field biologist? Well, I would say that I've sort of always been interested in the outdoors and wildlife in general. And so that kind of comes from just my family. Uh, and we had a farm where we got to spend a lot of times outdoors, but really getting interested in more like field work and ecology was definitely in undergraduate um, years where I took some classes like ornithology and conservation biology. And I just had some very inspirational professors and a lot of those courses had a field component to them. And I just found that I really liked being out in the field and I was, I was pretty good at making the observations. And so that's kind of maybe where I started going down this path. Fantastic. Where, where did you grow up by the way? I grew up in Ohio. Okay. And where did you go to undergraduate? I went to Tulane University, which is in New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay, okay. And I guess I'm wondering, what what was your first field job? My first actual field job was uh, right after I graduated. Um, I graduated in December, so that following spring, I took a field job uh, with University of Arizona out in Tucson with a professor there that was looking at burrowing owls. And we were stationed on an Air Force base, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, and basically looking for burrowing owl nests. And then once we found them, uh, doing some trapping and banding and just kind of um, getting an idea of um, their productivity and how they were doing. So, yeah, so that was my first real field job. I did a little bit of field work when I was still in school, um, but that was more like just kind of helping out. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. Neat, yeah. Burrowing owls are, are definitely super fun species to work with. I've done some field work with burrowing owls as well. Um, and we, of course, have a, one of our short documentaries is about the reintroduction of the burrowing owl to British Columbia. So, yeah, neat. Um, so, I, I guess I'm just sort of wondering, you know, I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of sort of the path that your career as a field biologist has, has taken you. Maybe you can just sort of share a few of 
you know, the sort of most interesting steps along the way for you, interesting field jobs or uh, uh, work that you've done. Um, and and, and I, I'm also wondering how long, you know, you've, you've been working as a field biologist. Yeah, well, I guess, um, I guess it's been about 15 years, but, you know, as most field biologists will know, that's usually very seasonal work. So you usually have some part of the year where you're maybe doing something else or, or writing things up or working on film projects or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, it's been about 15 years, about three years of that was in pursuit of a graduate career. Um, so I guess after the Arizona job, I went back to Louisiana and I worked for Tulane University actually doing some fish work for a while and um, kind of did that for a few years and then decided I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school so I wanted to get more experience so I got some more field jobs with doing more bird related work because that's kind of where my interest um, lies I guess. And I worked at a couple more academic universities, so the Ohio State University, um, for a couple summers. And then I kind of put my effort more into going to graduate school. And in graduate school, I uh, worked on a project. We were looking at mercury contamination in songbirds. And that was that was really, I think, a very integral part of my life because you're kind of proposing your own research and conducting your own research and doing the whole process rather than just the data collection process, which is what happens a lot in field biology. Um, and that was a, that was a really important project too, actually, because we were kind of looking at something that no one had looked at before at terrestrial insectivores songbirds and how they were being impacted by, um, a mercury contaminated river. And, uh, from that, um, kind of took a leap of faith a little bit, and I went up to Alaska for my first time, and I, I kind of fell in love with Alaska. So that's <laughs> that's kind of been where I, what I've been doing for the last few years is um, exploring different parts of Alaska and different. There's a lot of wildlife work up there, um, and it's such a big place, so it's really dependent on where you are, you know, can be really different from another place in Alaska. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got to where I am now. (laughs) Fantastic. Fantastic. And, and of course the, the, the work that you did, um, uh, on, on one particular project in the Aleutian Islands is, is the subject of, uh, the, the film that, that you have been working on, uh, with us. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned that, you mentioned that there's a lot of work for wildlife biologists in, in Alaska. There, there's sort of a lot going on um, in, in the world of wildlife biology uh, up in Alaska and, and in, in Arctic ecosystems uh, in, in particular. Um, I mean, you know, why is that? You know, why is it that, that there is a lot of work for wildlife biologists uh, in, in, in that part of the world? I think there's a couple reasons. Um, maybe one reason is that it's Alaska has still very intact ecosystems and you know they still have all their top predators and um, other species that have been more or less exterminated from parts of the lower 48 especially the east you know east of the Mississippi River Um, so it's a great place to really study these ecological processes and how they should be working which kind of gives you good information for how to solve problems uh, conservation problems are happening in, in other parts of the country. 
So that's maybe one reason. Um, and, you know, because there is so much wildlife up there, there's a lot of, there's a lot more wildlife human conflicts in some ways. And so that's also a big part of what happens in Alaska. And probably another big reason is Arctic ecosystems are definitely the first being, are, are being affected or impacted more rapidly right now by global climate change. And so there's a really big effort to do a lot of monitoring um, of how wildlife are adapting to climate change up there, which is important for um, for giving us information on, on how to maybe make the impacts less in other, other parts of the country if we have time. So I, I'm wondering sort of, you know, specifically about this project that you document uh, in, in this film from the time you spent in the Aleutian Islands. I guess just to start things off, you know, how, how did you come across, you know, that particular job? What drew you to that area in particular? Well, to tell you the truth, I came across of it. Um, it's a government job. And so uh, there's, you know, a particular website that you go to to look for government jobs. And it's with the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge and I'm I'm real interested in working with refuges. Um, you know, they're some of the most amazing places that we have in America. And like I said, you know, they're often very intact ecosystems. Um, and this one in particular, I don't think I really went into it thinking that I wanted to go to the Aleutians or work with seabirds, but just kind of perusing through, I saw this and it seemed like a amazing experience to have. And then looking more into it, you know, I found that it's one of the longest running um, monitoring uh, efforts that we have going on. It's something like 30 years or maybe a little bit more than 30 years that they've been monitoring seabirds and the Aleutians. And so that's amazing data set where they're really able to answer some some real questions and apply that. And also for me, I hadn't worked with seabirds in the past. So, like, I kind of – I'm definitely drawn a lot of times to – new challenges and new experiences and new animals. So that was, that was also a big part of it. You mentioned this long running data set um, for seabirds in the Aleutian Islands. I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what sort of the big picture research goals are for this long-term monitoring project and, and, and what um, the, the folks who are studying seabirds in, uh, in this region have, have discovered so far as a result of this research. Okay. Well, I think, um, one of the main reasons that the monitoring was first started is that in the Aleutians, it's it's obviously an island chain, and islands, um, well, there in particular, but other places like Hawaii, are often um, dealing with a lot of invasive or introduced species that have really horrible effects on the native wildlife, and so that was something that was happening with the seabirds. Um, things like caribou and goats and other domestic animals had been introduced into the Aleutians and um, seabirds, at least in that part of the world, had have evolved to nest in without um, without terrestrial mammals. So that means they don't really have they haven't evolved defenses to terrestrial mammals and they haven't had to deal with them and so. These new uh, mammals were having a really big impact on them, not only like just changing the vegetation um, and so changing their habitat, but also some of them directly, um, like things like cats and rats were eating the the seabird eggs and just um, 
decimating the populations. So that was a big part for starting the monitoring project. Basically, they wanted to get a better idea of what was happening and then how they could solve that problem. Uh, and another part of it is that seabirds are often used um, so we can better understand what's happening in the in the ocean. So particularly in a place like the Aleutians where you're dealing with the Barents Sea, it's really cold water, it's very rough seas, it's really hard to get a good idea of how things are changing in the marine um, ecosystem there. And seabirds are a good way to go because when they come to land and you're looking at their productivity and their population numbers and seeing how they change over time, they're getting all of their nutrients from the sea. So it kind of gives you a good idea of how things might be changing in the fish populations, which is, there's many reasons to be interested in that from the human perspective. I mean, we get so much of our fish from Alaska waters. So there's that part. And also just, um, again, global climate change, you know, how is a slightly warmer ocean affecting fish populations? And how is that, what seems like a small change at the beginning, how is it being kind of um, uh, what impacts is it having all the way through the system to something like a seabird, you know, and then maybe even like the predators of a seabird. So I think those are like the two main reasons to start the monitoring project. And then, you know, when you're looking at invasive species and introduced species, basically what the methods are is to find, to first figure out how they're impacting the seabirds and then to remove these species, these non-native species and then look again at the at the native seabird populations and see if they're responding. So that's kind of inherently what monitoring is, is looking at changes over time. And so they needed to do that, you know, after they got rid of these non-native species. And it just sort of made logical sense to keep to keep going with the monitoring since they already had all the methods and logistics in place. So how are seabird populations doing on, on these islands uh, as compared to what they maybe looked like, you know, 30 or 30, 35 years ago when monitoring began? There's definitely been a really um, positive response to getting rid of non-native animals, especially the rats. Um, so for the most part, you know, populations and productivity have been rising since the 70s. Um, but there's also... You know, there's also some changes that are happening now, particularly on Iktak Island, where I was based, um, the Glaucus wingalls, which are not a seabird, but they're also a, um, a bird of interest in the Aleutians because um, they nest up there. They've been having really, really low productivity in the last few years. And there's, right now, there's we don't know exactly why that's happening, but, um, you know, that's another part of of monitoring is you kind of get a few years of data, maybe a few more years and you can start answering that question. So that might be something related more to global climate change, but in terms of how it looks now to how it looks when they first started the monitoring in the seventies, um, almost all the seabird populations are on the rise or have risen to a more sustainable um, number, I guess, than they were. Uh, and that's that's basically because there's been so much effort to uh, to get rid of non-native mammals and vegetation, but that's still a problem. I mean, there's def there's still islands where there's caribou out there that have a big impact on the on the vegetation. There's um, you know you're, there's so much shipping traffic that 
there's still like a large potential to have rats and other things that get carried on ships show up on these islands and things like marine debris is becoming more and more of an issue as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of those populations are stable for now, but, uh, it's, you know, I guess that's, that's one of the, um, one of the great things about long-term monitoring is if you keep it going then you know, we'll see how that changes in, in future years. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 it's certainly good to hear that, you know, overall that these, these seabird populations are, you know, increasing or stable, especially as compared to when monitoring first began. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's also really good to have these long-term data sets, you know, and, and long-term data sets like this that have been going on for 30 or 35 years are extremely helpful in teasing out the impacts of our changing climate. Um, and, and they're also rare, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, you, you don't come across a, 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 a data set of that length um, that's, that's quite so robust uh, uh, very often. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, I, I'm wondering, uh, I, I kind of want to shift gears here and start talking a little bit about um, what the experience is like of working on a project like this, where you're on an island for an extended period of time that where where no other people live um and so you're basically living in 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 isolation um for uh, uh an extended period of time um so i i mean what was that like you know i mean what was it like getting out there and then once you're there on the island i mean what what does sort of your your day-to-day routine look like okay um yeah i mean i think it's it, it definitely has a lot of its of challenges, you know, kind of preparing to be in that situation where you you have to do a lot of um, preparation before you even leave to think about you know your food and all your safety needs and communication possibilities and um, you know those sort of survival things you need to be out there and also just mentally like getting yourself prepared to basically be out of outside of society for an extended amount of time. Um, so, you know, the days leading up to leaving, there's just a lot of, a lot of preparation work, a lot of thinking about logistics, especially in a place like Alaska, where it is so difficult to get around. And so, you know, if, if there was some sort of instance where you needed help, you know, depending on the weather, which is often really bad, really foggy and wet and cold in the Aleutians, um, <laughs> you know, it might not, a response to come help you might take a little bit longer, you know? Um, so there's that part of it, but actually being out there, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> if my, if I'm an, a normal person in this respect, but I really, <laughs> I really, really enjoy it. Cause it's, I mean, it's just, it's super empowering to, to learn how to be so independent and, you know, um, so, you know, day to day things like, making sure you have filtered water, you know, which is really important. Um, making sure you have like some sort of heat source and making sure that your food is dry and all those kinds of things. Um, I mean, there's, they're really, they're really simple, basic things, but they kind of end up being the things that take up a lot of your time, (laughs) uh, just sort of keeping camp going and clean. And, but, you know, like the most, the most valuable part of an experience like that is, is uh, you're out there on an island and there's only one other person, but somehow for me, I, I don't 
really get lonely so much. And I think it's just because you're in this like just super beautiful, amazing place with so much wildlife around. I mean, your neighbors are stellar sea lions that most people don't even get to see. And there's just millions of seabirds, tufted puffins flying around you all the time and whales sometimes off at sea. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things just kind of, kind of make everything else like the really bad weather or days when you can't even, can't even leave the cabin because it's just so windy or you're so fogged in that you can't see anything. So you can't really do any work. It may, but the, you know, those few sunny days where you get to have these awesome interactions with wildlife just kind of make everything else worth it <laughs> for me, at least. Is it important for you to have a creative outlet when you're working a field job? And, and I mean, particularly a field job like this where you're, you're so isolated. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably a pretty, um, I think a lot of field biologists kind of have, have that or need that creative outlet. And, uh, for me, I do, I do a lot of writing, um, which is partly a lot of writing, a lot of photography, you know, partly for me, I guess, because you aren't, you don't have like a lot of possibilities to communicate. So writing's a good way to, to kind of get, get that out. And, but also like it, it, um, it's a good way when you look, when you read what you wrote later, you know, it kind of brings you back to that place and like, you remember how you felt and, and it also really helps you to share those experiences with other people, like your, you know, family or friends who, um, sometimes it can be really hard to sort of explain <laughs> why you want to go live on an Island for four months with <laughs> 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 nobody else. And, and, uh, you know, when you, I think writing is a really good for me, it's a really good creative outlet and photography because, you know, photos are just, when you share photos with other people, they really start getting a sense of what it's like to be out there. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I find that to be the case with, with myself as well. And, and I, I think it's the case with, with, you know, sort of almost regardless of what form that creative outlet takes, whether it's writing or photography or filmmaking um, or music, um, I, I, I think creating something, you know, taking a photograph or writing something down in, in, in a journal, um, it, it allows you to go back um, at, at a later time and sort of re-experience uh, uh, what you were going through in, in, in a different light. And, and I think it also helps you remember those, experience, uh, those experiences a lot more clearly. Um, and, and, you know, not even just you know, that one image or that one moment, you know, you could take a photograph that represents this one sort of frozen point in time. But, you know, by viewing that, it sparks your memory and you're able to remember all these other different details about what was going on uh, uh, at, at, at that moment that maybe, you, you know, uh, uh, maybe would have been lost if, if you didn't have that, that, that one moment captured in time. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, you know, I mean, it's a lot of times when you when you think back about things, you remember like the really good times, and you know, and that's not always the case. I mean, especially when you're out in the field, there's a lot of days that are very challenging. Whether you know whether it's to do with bad weather or just problems that, with your other your fellow field biologists or whatever it may be, and writing for me is a kind of you know, I don't only write about positive things. 
<laughs> so it's a good way to remember that too. And for me, I think that's kind of important because I want to remember it the way that it really is. And I want to explain it to people the way it really is rather than kind of sugarcoat it too much. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the film that you directed uh, about your experience uh, in the working this job in, in the Aleutian Islands um, because it, I feel like it, it really does a fantastic job of capturing what that experience was like. Like, I, I mean, watching this film, I really feel like I'm, I'm there with you on, you know, on this Island for, for this four month period. And, um, uh, I, I think, um, I don't know, you, you just did a really, uh, uh I, th- I think fantastic job of, of capturing that, that feeling of, of what it's, uh, what it's like, um, uh, to, to, to be there. So uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, what your sort of inspiration was for, uh, I mean, it sounds like your sort of primary creative outlet is, is writing um, and a little bit of photography. I'm wondering, you know, what made you decide to, to take that next step and delve into uh, filmmaking? Um, I think, I guess because filmmaking sort of, it sort of is the two things together, I guess. You know, you get the visual perspective, obviously, Um and then you're still telling a story or or documenting what was happening like you would be in writing but film to it seems like film these days um has a much larger audience and maybe it's easier to portray really how things are happening cuz you're kind of doing it in real time so um it was a challenge for me i had never really done film stuff at all before i'd only really done photography uh, so that part, um, you know, and then connecting with Wild Lens, I mean, just your guys's kind of goal was something when I read that it was like something I had been thinking about, too. And I was like, yeah, that's that's great. You know, like trying to get the perspective of a field biologist and film just seems like a really good natural way to do that. So I'm wondering what kind of challenges you encountered uh, through the process of uh, shooting for this documentary. Um, and I mean, you talked about sort of the, 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 the challenges that you encountered and, and just sort of learning sort of the ins and outs of this new medium that you maybe didn't have that much experience working with up until this point. But I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind when I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the challenges you might've encountered when, uh, shooting for this film is, uh, like logistical challenges, you know, I mean, the weather, um, you know, uh, the, the rain and fog and your equipment. I mean, I, like how how did you charge your batteries for your camera even you know i mean when you're you're out there in such this such a remote area yeah that was those were definitely the biggest challenges for sure um you know wind like it was super windy on most days and that was really challenging because there was only two of us on the island so a lot of times i was trying to shoot something by myself cuz we might have not been working together that day or if we were working together you know i I might be behind a camera trying to shoot my fellow uh, field biologists doing work, but wind was uh, wind was super challenging because if you're you know using a tripod and um, it's it was very unstable ground and there was a lot of cliffs and stuff, so you know there was a lot of times where the tripod was getting knocked over, so that was very challenging. Um, uh, yeah, and like kind of learning those logistics uh, with film was was definitely new for me. You know, things like wind, obviously, also when you're trying to record your voice um, is super challenging as well. And trying to figure out, you know, where you can do that 
and I wanted I wanted to have the real perspective. Like I want people to hear the wind, so you can kind of get an idea of how you know what it means to be out like when it's really windy like that, and you can't hear somebody who is just a couple feet away from you. <laughs> um, and you know, in terms of batteries, yeah, that was also something that we were dealing with all the time for work stuff and um, for this film project. And what we had was just a. A car battery, two car batteries that we brought with us, um, which is basically how we charge everything. But, you know, it's often a very slow process and you have to make sure your uh, car battery doesn't run out of juice. And so we had one solar panel set up outside our camp. Um, and as you can probably imagine in, you know, very foggy Aleutian Island weather, you don't get a whole lot of sun. Um, <laughs> but it actually... Um, it actually works well enough to keep the car battery charged, but we did, we had some logistical problems. We had about a, a couple weeks actually where our solar panel was not working. Um, and so, and during that time we were completely dependent on just the car battery and just trying to make sure only the things that we really needed to be charged were charged and not using uh, it for anything else. So, you know, lights or something like that. We would just use uh, our headlamps at nighttime if we needed to. Um, but yeah, so those are definitely the biggest logistical challenges, but, you know, I think another challenge for me too is I hadn't really, I hadn't really done any film work before. So, you know, um, I had, I went out there with an idea of what I wanted to record and what kind of story I wanted to tell, but then it really changes when you're actually out there and you realize that you can get this shot, but you can't get that shot. Cause you're, you know, you're working, you're trying to film, um, wildlife and they're not really going <laughs> to listen to what you want them to do. <laughs> so, so that was another part of it too, just like trying to adapt things to what was actually logistically possible when you're out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, that's definitely sort of the next, the next question I had for you was about how your story took shape over time and, and sort of what, what changed about your story as you sort of made these realizations like, Oh, maybe I can't get this shot or, Oh, maybe, you know, this goal I set for the story is unrealistic. Yeah. I think I went out there a little bit more thinking I wanted to portray, um, like the, the science of what we were doing and, uh, more about the monitoring and like the methods that you use to kind of get this kind of data. And then, it kind of evolved more into telling the story of like really what it means to be out there and, you know, from the field biologist perspective, um, you know, and still, I, I still wanted to talk about what, why it's important to do this work, you know, but maybe to give a little bit more voice to the actual field biologist and what, what field biologists around the world deal with, you know, I mean, depending, like we were dealing with bad weather, but in a lot of other places you're dealing with lots of bugs or really, really hot weather or, you know, just, or dangerous wildlife encounters or all kinds of things like that. So, you know, I think that's basically evolved more into telling the story of, of, of being out there and living out there and, and, um, collecting, collecting the scientific data and what goes into collecting that scientific data, but also just like what goes into just, you know, making breakfast in the morning too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I think as, as important as it is to, you know, uh, convey 
the science, right? I mean, I think it's also equally as important to show, you know, the to show what the what these biologists have to go through in order to collect that data, in order to to bring this information, you know, back to the public. I think is is also I think it's equally as important, and you know, especially when you take into consideration the fact that, you know, a, a, a lot of these areas where biologists are working, I mean, these are some of you know they're they're working under some of the most extreme conditions that you can find on on our planet, um, because you know that that's just that's where you have to go to answer uh, a certain question. You know, if you want to know what uh, uh, seabird popu- how seabird populations are doing on the Aleutian Islands. Then someone's got to be there, you know, for that four month period looking <laughs> looking at their nesting success, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I guess my next question for you would be, um, if you know, what wh- what advice would you have for for other folks um, out there who are working in science and and maybe looking for uh, some type of creative outlet? I think. It, I mean, I I don't know. I guess it's a little bit of a hard question because it sort of depends on what each individuals person's interest is uh but i think that when you are out there working as a field biologist i think it's really important to try to document like what your own feelings and stories and actually record them in one way or another whether it's writing or photography or film or painting or whatever it may be um because oftentimes it's you think oh yeah you know i'm gonna remember this this was such a amazing encounter with wildlife or experience or whatever. Um, but you don't really remember it maybe quite the way it happened. So it's, it's probably, that would probably be my main advice is to actually like spend the time and, and record it in whatever way you, you think, you know, you're interested in recording. And, you know, and I think something that probably a lot of field biologists share is, you know, we get to go to these most amazing places and see this awesome wildlife and, and off, you know, oftentimes like actually like working with them, I mean, directly, you know, touching them and manipulating them or whatever it may be, especially with bird work. And, you know, those are things that just people in other careers, just a lot of them can't even fathom doing or just are never going to have that chance. And so, I think there's a lot of interest in wanting to share these experiences with other people when you get back. Um, Cause there can kind of be a disconnect sometimes. I think for me, at least in my own personal life, you know, people often, I don't, I often feel like they don't quite understand what it is I do when I'm out there. So, you know, having these, these different ways to document what you're doing, um, film, writing, photography, is a really good way to share those experiences and really people start understanding, you know, they get it. So uh, for me, that's, that's like one of the best parts of it actually is coming back and sharing those experiences. So do you have any plans for future film projects? (laughs) Uh, I don't exactly at this moment, but I had a, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing this and now I feel you know this is my first film project so there definitely were it wasn't like the smoothest ride in the whole world um but I learned a lot and so uh whatever my next project that like next research project it is I take on I definitely would be interested in kind of pursuing something like this again another film project so um I'm going back to Alaska this season uh so 
not sure maybe something can come out of that but uh yeah definitely interested in doing it again <laughs> <laughs> neat so yeah you mentioned that that you're you'll be going back up to alaska again uh this 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 spring what is this uh a uh, uh, job that you're going up to alaska for it's not the same job that that we see portrayed in the film no it's um it's again with the u.s fish and wildlife and i'll be working for the migratory bird office in anchorage which they do a lot of different things uh but i'll be specifically working with the waterfowl biologist so we'll be down in the YK Delta of Alaska, which is southwest Alaska, where the Yukon and the Kukushwim rivers come together and form a really large delta. Um, it's a really large breeding ground for waterfowl and especially geese, uh, greater white-fronted geese will be one that we're working with. And so a lot of the things will be similar. We'll be looking at productivity, which basically means looking for nests and monitoring the nests over the season and population in these geese. So that's part of the work. Um, and then I'll also be taking samples from the geese to look at stable isotopes, uh, which there's lots of questions that can be answered with stable isotopes um, stemming from where, like what type of food are these geese eating? Um, where are they spending like their migratory patterns? Where are they going over the winter? Um, and then we're also going to be looking more specifically at health, which is something like you take blood and feather samples, biological samples. And just like when we go to the doctor, basically we can kind of look at the health of individual geese. Uh, so that's part of it. And then we'll be doing also aerial surveys um, across the state of Alaska, which is uh, a way to get just population estimates. Um, so very similar to what you do with seabird work, uh, but since greater white Frankies breed throughout the state, it's a much larger effort. So you have to do aerial surveys rather than just being focused in one place. Um, and that is similar in that it's just a, a monitoring effort. So you can look at that data over years and see if the populations are increasing or decreasing. And then, it, you know, if they are decreasing, you can start with the other data, um, the health and productivity data, you can start kind of asking questions and trying to understand why the population numbers are changing. Fantastic. Well, yeah, sounds like interesting stuff. And yeah, you're, you're right. I think there, there could be some potential for some uh, interesting stories to tell there in the form of uh, uh, another short documentary. So yeah, we'll have to stay up to date with you and, and, and see how some of those ideas develop. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on to the show today, Michaela, and sharing some of this great information about uh, your work in Alaska and other field jobs you've worked and also your uh, uh, first foray into, into filmmaking. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. All right. That was our interview with wildlife researcher and filmmaker Michaela Howie. As you might have been able to tell from the interview, I am extremely excited about the release of her new film. I think it is one of the most powerful films that we've produced thus far as a part of Eyes on Conservation. So be sure to take some time to watch this new film. You can check it out on the Wildlands homepage, that's wildlandsinc.org, as well as on our companion Eyes on Conservation video podcast. And if you've been inspired by Michaela's story, be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where we'll have additional resources to learn more about seabird monitoring programs in the Aleutian Islands, as well as information about how you can get involved in Eyes on Conservation. 
Each year, as a part of our mentorship program, we accept submissions of story ideas from aspiring wildlife filmmakers from all across the globe. We work closely with filmmakers who present to us the very best story submissions all throughout the production process to develop a film worthy of release here at Eyes on Conservation. Michaela's submission really grabbed our attention because of her interesting approach towards storytelling, and we couldn't be happier about the resulting film. Check out the show notes page for this episode to learn more at wildlensinc.org eoc22. That's wildlensinc.org eoc22. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.